Uh, this morning, we're going to share together in the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 8. Uh, and this is a story, uh, we're going to read just the middle part of the story, uh, which is uh, really a triplet, one of three stories back to back to back, uh, so that we don't miss what Jesus is teaching us. Let's share in God's good word together. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. Just then there came a man named Jairus, a leader of the synagogue. He fell at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, who was dying. As he went, the crowds pressed in on him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. is a good chance by the end of this series you will see me dancing through the open. That is just too good. That's a lot of fun. Uh, It's about time, friends. It's about time that we get to know our neighbors. It's about time that we take God seriously. It's about time that we remember that Jesus is Lord and not just our buddy. It's about time. It's about our time. It's about God's time. It's about time as a church that we step into the fullness of what God has for us. Uh, For those of you who were here uh, last week, my name is Mark Foster. I'm the senior pastor here. I'm glad to be back. I was at a wedding in Eureka Springs. Man, was it hot. Beautiful, but hot. But I'm glad to be back. And so we're going to talk about what is it to be a good neighbor. What is it to be a good neighbor? Last week, um, Andy did a wonderful job of setting the table for what uh, it means for us to really be world transformers by getting to know our neighbor and asking the question, what if Jesus was serious about the great commandment, about loving your neighbor as yourself, about really loving your neighbor. What would that look like? Well, if if you're like me and you have some sort of management responsibility, you've probably read a book by Ken Blanchard. Um, Ken says that building relationships with our neighbors leads to better communities, better cities, and ultimately a better world. Do you believe that? You believe that? Yeah. Uh, It's statistically true. Studies have been done over and over and over again in in all kinds of different cities and and what makes uh, for a good neighborhood. And and one of the things that uh, folks that work in real estate will tell you, um, when they look over a neighborhood, they want to know, is anybody outside walking their dog? Are their neighbors in the front yard talking? Do the neighbors know each other's names? And if they do, property value, home values go up. If you go to a different neighborhood and there's no one outside and people are locking their doors and and maybe you've been through that neighborhood where there's bars on the doors and and everything screams, stay away, get away from me, all the value of those neighborhoods does what? Goes down. There is real power in knowing your neighbors. It's common sense, but this is the thing we have to understand about Jesus. He is the smartest man that has ever lived. And he's trying to help us with the things that he says. And so we need to make sure that we understand that every time we have a challenge from Jesus, that we wrestle with it and not dismiss it because it's for our good. So last week, Andy asked us to fill in a block chart of our neighbors. And so on your bulletin, if you weren't here last week, uh, I've set that up for you again so you can see that. Um, So 
who is my neighbor um, block chart. It looks like this. Um, and one of the things that, that you might know is that uh, Reverend Andy and I, we, we lay out sermon series for the year together. Uh, we talk about what we're going to preach on. Um, and sometimes it fits better with one of us than the other. Often he will follow my lead. But I had a, a lapse of, of either judgment or, um, or oomph. And this is Andy's sermon series, friends. It's not mine. <laughs> this is really hard for me. Uh, I'm not a good neighbor. I don't claim to be. It's a struggle for me. Um, I'm largely introverted when I'm not at work. And so I really, for me, a great day, uh, I don't see anyone. I mean, that's my perfect day. I'm, I'm in the woods. Um, I'm with some trees blowing and I'm watching them dance. Um, I'm meditating on some scripture. I'm, you know, I'm enjoying the sun, maybe some birds. And I don't see any of you. So that, that's like a great day for me. Um, so, um, if, if you, if you look here, I don't know if I can do this. I might be able to do this. Yeah. So this, Chantel and I actually moved uh, about nine years ago to our current house. Uh, and the reason that we moved to our current house is because this is a green belt. And this is a green belt. So we don't see anybody. So if you look to the north, uh, that's, what my, that's what my backyard looks like. Um, there's a guy on the north side that uh, has a lot of money and he owns the whole stretch. And so we don't think that's going anywhere. We're very excited about that. If you look out to the west, we were told the same thing uh, for about 15 years. Uh, they were a few years off. It's completely scraped. I'm going to have hundreds of neighbors in short order. I've been looking over all of West Edmond and praying for everybody in West Edmond. And you can actually see our church just to the right there, St. Monica's. Uh, but all that's about to change. Um, but so when we, when we come to this idea of neighboring, just know that if you're struggling... I'm on the struggle bus with you. This is something that's really hard for me. Uh, but I'm going to do my best. And I'd ask that you do your best as well. And so uh, who is my neighbor? When we talk about this, um, here's something. If you, if you don't know this already, I challenge you to do this. I'm learning. Um, you got to know their name. It's hard to love someone that you don't know their name. And so um, fortunately for me, Andy and Melissa live two doors down. And I've got grass behind me. So I'm, I'm doing well. Um, so I know Andy and Melissa and their two kids. What are their names? Uh, Elijah and Anne. I've got them. But, um, you know, Tim and Mickey are two houses down. Uh, I try to get all of Acts 2 people to live around me so I don't have to meet anyone else. Um, it, it's hard. Um, so also, there's information that you can't learn from your driveway. I'm like, what might that be? Um, interestingly, on the other side of Andy and Melissa is, is Reverend Pong Ong Lao, uh, also United Methodist minister, where I'm preacher row. Um, really, come move with us. It's great. It's a little preacher row there. Um, and so here's the thing. I, I took this seriously, and I actually struck up a conversation with Pong this week. And uh, I found out that uh, this month, he, is, he and all of his family are going to get on a plane and go to his mom's 90th birthday. That's sweet. And then he told me it's a 35-hour flight to where it's home for him. He's the head of our Chinese international church. And so now I know how to pray for Pong. I know how to pray for his son, Joseph. I know how to pray for his, his wife. And, the other, and can you imagine headed to China with all of your extended family to celebrate your mom's 90th birthday? You just, you just can't learn that stuff uh, by ignoring people. It really touched me. And then, you know, what are their career plans, their dreams, their hopes, those sorts of things? Now, why would we do this? Why would we do this? Because Jesus said, love God with everything you have and love your, say it with me, neighbor as yourself. And it's very possible that he really did mean your neighbor. Sometimes we like to, you know, spiritualize all these sorts of things in the scripture. That's wrong-headed. 
most of the time, when the scripture says what it says, it means what it says. Uh, we don't like it. We'd like for it to say something else, and so we fluff it up. Um, but love your neighbor, your real neighbor as yourself. Paul says in Galatians, the entire law, all of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all of that is summed up in a single command, which is love your what? Neighbor as yourself. And so you have this repetition that not only did God say this and Jesus said this, Paul's saying this to the early church, and there's something about being a good neighbor, isn't there? I grew up um, with commercials that look like this. Y'all remember these? It's groovy. That used to be really powerful. If you, if you know it, sing with me. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. This is, this is the doormat I want. Like a good neighbor, stay over there. That's, that's, that's where I live. Now, it's interesting that there's a wall there in front of that mat. I'm like, well, okay. So, but why is this? There's something in, in many of us that, that this really is true. And we have to overcome it. I think when Jesus was teaching about loving your neighbor, he knew that that was going to be hard for us. I don't think he would have said it if we already had that down. Right? He, he's being intentional here. He's like, Mark, really, love your neighbor. But here's the problem. We're often moving so fast that we don't notice those who are right around us who need a good neighbor. They need a good neighbor. Have you ever had that experience where you really needed a good neighbor? Maybe you really needed to have a conversation with your spouse or your child or a parent or, or really your neighbor or your boss. And you began to pour your heart out to them. And they just didn't have time for that conversation. You remember what that felt like? You see, what we want to say is welcome. What's within many of us is go away. And so this week, our, our question really is, do I live at a pace that allows me to be available to those around me? To really be around me. And, and I would submit to you that one of the main reasons um, that I'll speak for myself that I don't know my neighbors and maybe you don't know your neighbors is because by the time I get home, I'm exhausted. If you're putting in 14 hours a day uh, at your office or in ministry or in whatever you do, just know that it's going to be really hard to love your neighbor because you've got no time left. I mean, if, if you're like me, uh, more often than not, um, if you're coming in late, you hit the garage door, you hope no one sees you, and you hit it again so it'll close so that you, have, you, have, you don't even have to be rude because your pace of your life does it for you. But you're never going to get to know anybody that way. You can't love your neighbor in a hurry. And the problem, of course, is that we live in a world that values production, results, and activity. That's what gets rewarded. And the last one is super important. Say it with me. It's what? Activity. Activity. I remember one of the best days of Chantel and I's life was when our boys were about six and eight, six and nine, seven and ten around there. And we were driving somewhere. It was late November, early December. And I looked over at Chantel and I said, so, did the boys get signed up for winter sports, basketball and wrestling? And she said, they never asked. And I was like, what? 
do you mean we have all of December, January, and February with no sports? And she goes, yes, that's what I'm saying. We had the sweetest 90 days of our life. We talked, we played games, we hung out, we saw each other for the first time in maybe six years. We weren't running to this event and running to that event and getting to that game and and, and being ugly with one another because we were running late because we didn't get to the second thing. I didn't have to schedule all of the boys' football games where I was coaching both of them and have them back-to-back to get to this, to that, to the other thing and get over here. You understand what I'm saying, young families, right? So by accident, we actually fell into a sweet spot of life because I don't know if this remains true, but I'm told that less than 2% of the population become professional athletes. You might think about it. You can't love in a hurry. Say that with me. You can't love in a hurry. You ever try to hug somebody at full pace? Boom, it's painful. You can't do it. You cannot love in a hurry. Right? Um, John Gottman will will tell you, research tells you, that a three-second kiss can save your marriage. That doesn't sound like very long until you actually do it. Three seconds, friends. So again, think about this. At work or in your family life, has someone tried to rush you? Have you tried to rush someone else? And did you feel loved in that exchange? I mean, I'm really interested. Has anybody ever felt loved in a rushed exchange? I love you. Love you too. See you later. I mean, it just, it just doesn't ring true. And so here are the three lies of hurried and harried people. You'll you'll notice that it's not three lies of hurried and peaceful people. There are no such people. It's hurried and harried people. Lie number one. Things will what? You know it. Settle down someday. That's true when you're dead. When you die, things settle down dramatically. Until then, you can become addicted to a certain pace, a certain accolade, a certain lifestyle. My first church that I ever served in, in Minko, uh, there was a woman by the name of Deanne Gurley, and she said this to me, and it's never left me. She said, Pastor Mark, you know what I found? And I said, no, Deanne, what? She goes, if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. And I thought, wow, that is right. The devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. Say that with me. If the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. You see, distraction is distraction. You don't have to be distracted by terrible things. You can just be distracted. And distraction is the curse of our age, friends. Absolutely is. We just can't focus on, on one another, the things of God. So we say things like this. If I can just get through to next, what is it for you? Semester? Week? Summer? School year? Wednesday? I'll be fine. And in and, and truth, uh, Chantel and I find ourselves living there all the time. Now, and it's a terrible way to live. It's a terrible way to live. Uh, as a pastor, uh, this, is, this is the way it is from, from here. If I can only get through the capital campaign, if I can only get through Bible school, if I can only get through back to school, if I can only get through Chris, well stewardship, then can I get through Christmas? Can I get through Easter? You see how that just sucks the joy and the life right out of you? I mean, seriously, you're trying to get through Easter? The very resurrection power of God. But we, we fall into this, don't we? You think of yourself, oh, if I can just get to... And that's driven, of course, by what? More will be enough. 
If I buy more, if I do more, I'll be recognized. If I be more, if, if I can get a, another degree, if I can get another promotion, if I can do more. Say more with me. More is a thief, friends. More is a thief. He'll steal your life from you. And then... When we're hurried and harried and we're grumpy with the people that we're supposed to love, what do we say? Well, everybody lives like this. It's not true. Now, a lot of folks in Edmond live like this. I'll give you that. But not everybody. I've been to places in the world where people are happy. Really happy and peaceful and joyful. And they have a lot less than we do. And I don't mean a car or two less. I mean like less like not a roof not an appliance and they're joyful people you see living a hurried frantic lifestyle is the opposite of what jesus wants for our lives and he never modeled that i want to show you the unhurried life of jesus in luke 8 it says this soon after he went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of god that's what he was doing the 12 were with him the disciples then his mother and his brothers came to him but they could not reach him because of what the crowd right they wanted him to be busy they wanted him to do things for them and he was told your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to see you but he said to them my mother and brothers are those who hear the word of god and do it. Will you read this, the yellow words with me? My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. You see, Jesus had a, a singular focus of mission to do the Father's will. Jesus' first priority was to do the will of the Father. And we're to do likewise if we're going to follow him. That's it. And, and on that day, it meant that he continued into what God was asking him to do and not being distracted by some family demands. Now, that's a very unpopular sermon in Edmund these days. But it is what Jesus did, and we need to recognize that. So when we do the same, Jesus says this makes us what? Family with Jesus. When you do the things, when you do the will of the Father, you are now family with Jesus. You become his mother, his brothers, his sisters, his children. And so this is what Jesus is moving through the town. And so then they arrived at the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. Now, this is a big deal, because at this time... Uh, Judaism and God is all wrapped up in one thing, and it was wrapped up in the nation of Israel. So if you take a look at the map um, here, you're going to see Galilee's over here. This is the Sea of Galilee here. And where Jesus went, he'd been teaching over here at Tiberias and, and by Magdala, and he's going to go across the sea over here to the area of the Gerasenes. Now, Nothing good happened on that side. It was also known as Decapolis. It was, it was nothing good that happened over there. Nothing good was expected over there. And as Jesus steps out on the land, a man of the city who had demons met him. And for a long time, he had worn no clothes, and he did not live in a house but in the tombs. And seminary called him the naked wandering tomb dude. That's who he is. Very scary, right? I mean, if you imagine this guy, wild hair, not bathed, no clothes, lives at the cemetery. Scary guy. And so he immediately, Jesus steps out to continue his teaching and preaching ministry, and he's immediately interrupted by a guy completely out of his mind and demon-possessed. So when he saw Jesus, he falls down before him. That's what he does. Say that with me. He fell down before him, and he shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? He knew who he was immediately. I beg you, he says, do not torment me. And Jesus doesn't torment him. He heals him. 
And so what happens? Jesus is, is, has been teaching and preaching and helping and healing. He goes all the way over to the other side of the lake or the sea, and he's interrupted. He's interrupted. His plans change because of this man that's before him. And this could not be a lower profile, friends. This is somebody who wasn't Jewish. He wasn't in his right mind. He didn't have clothes on. This is the lowest of the low. Jesus should have had nothing to do with this guy. Now, when he finishes healing him up um, and blessing him, uh, he returns. And, of course, the crowd is there, as the crowd always is. For they were all waiting for him, just as you always have things waiting on you. Just then there came a man named Jairus, a leader of the synagogue. Now, could not be more different from the guy that we just saw in the last piece, right? The, the leader of the synagogue, not only is the synagogue the holy place, but he's the leader of the synagogue. And he, too, read it with me, he fell at Jesus' feet and begged him. See the alliteration? It's the exact same thing that happened with the naked wandering tomb dude, right? Same thing, completely different person. To come to his house for he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, who was dying as he went. The crowds pressed in on him again. And what happens? Jesus is interrupted again. This time by someone on the complete other end of the social spectrum. But the response to Jesus, God himself, was the same. And we're supposed to learn from this, friends that the only appropriate action when you come into the face of Jesus is to fall down and worship him and beg him to change your life. Doesn't matter how much money you have or how little you have. Doesn't matter whether you're having a good day or bad day. And in the middle of this request of him to go heal Jairus' daughter, he's interrupted again. Now, there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years, and though she had spent all she had on physicians, no one could cure her. She came up behind him, touched the fringe of his clothes, and immediately her hemorrhage stopped. Then Jesus asked, who touched me? And when all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surround you, and they press in on you. Like, how are we supposed to know? But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I noticed that power had gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she could not remain hidden, she came trembling and, oh, there it is again. Read it with me. Falling down before him. She declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she'd been immediately healed. And he said to her daughter, not woman, not what are you doing, not how dare you. He calls her, say it with me, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. So Jesus is interrupted a third time. He's interrupted by an interruption after the last interruption. Have you ever had one of those days? When I've been interrupted three times while I'm doing sermon prep, that is not my normal response. I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm trying to finish this up. I got people waiting on me. What are you doing? You know, there's this, this internal dialogue that I'm, I'm working on. Pray for me. You know, the, 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 have you ever had that day where you, you hope that your insides don't ever come to the outside because you know they're not where they need to be quite yet? You know, because we're all just a big old tube of toothpaste, isn't it? When you get squeezed, whatever's in you comes out. Look at what's inside Jesus. Healing, love. Grace, compassion, patience, but it's also driven by a pace of life that allows it, friends. Jesus often went away and prayed. He looked for a solitary place. He spent time alone in prayer in the early morning. So our action step, friends, are these. First of all, and, and this is difficult, but you can do it even this afternoon. Identify and eliminate the non-essentials. Really, what's non-essential in your life? Really, think about it. What's non-essential in your life? There's lots of things in our lives, most of which are not essential. And, and how do we do that? Well, we reflect on what's most important, and we schedule around it. You understand this? That that's what we all do anyway. People always do what they want to do. Ultimately, what they think is most important is what we actually live out. 
Now, we can deny it all we want. We can say what we want. But our calendars and our pocketbooks tell us what we believe in and what's really most important to us. So we have to reflect on that. What's most important? And then you schedule around it. And here's the thing, friends. If you don't set your priorities, someone else will do it for you. Your boss, grandma, a friend, somebody will do it for you. So secondly then, eliminate time stealers. I think our community would be much stronger if every one of us just got off Facebook for the summer. I mean, really, just, just delete it. It won't go away. Um, they'll, they'll make you have it back sooner or later. Um, you think about the kind of time you lose uh, playing a video game or with TV. And, and, and I, these are not evil things in and of themselves. Of course not. But I wonder, for those of us who say, well, we don't have enough time to pray or we don't have enough time to meet our neighbor, we don't have time to do the things that God asks us to do, how many of these are we putting in front of an actual holy life? I, I don't know. I don't know. But this is where the difference between an ordinary, harried life is in contrast to a beautiful, powerful life. Once upon a time in Florence, Italy, there was a block of marble. may have looked like that, may have looked something different. But then came along a person with a vision who was also a master of the art of elimination. Take a bit here, take a bit there. And this master could see something that no one else could see, but he knew it was in there. But it would take ruthlessly chipping away at everything that was not the masterpiece. Day after day, minute by minute, moment by moment, Michelangelo would look at the block and he would chip away at that block of marble until David emerged. Even today, people flock to Florence, Italy to see Michelangelo's David but David's just a block of marble with all the taken away. And so is your life. Your life is a masterpiece. But you'll never see it if you keep all the other junk on there. You have to chip it away. And sometimes it's super painful. And sometimes you don't know if there's any of you going to be left. And God says, you are made in my image. You are in the imago Dei, the very image of God. But you've got to get all that other stuff chipped away if you want your life to be the masterpiece that God intends. And thirdly, living with a level of peace that allows us to be interruptible. Will you say the word interruptible with me? Interruptible. It is a word that is spelled correctly. It just looks weird. Interruptible. Now, uh, fortunately for me, um, we have a person in our church that lived this out beautifully uh, this week while I was uh, preparing. Uh, late Tuesday, uh, this is John Hurd. Many of y'all know John. He got an email from Living Water International. And they were in a real bind with not having a driller for this coming week to go and put in water wells for people who are dying of waterborne illness because they don't have clean water. And so they just emailed John on Tuesday. Hey, John, would you come to Guatemala this week? <clears throat> and if you know John, he began to pack. That's just John, who John is. And so John will be leading a team... Uh, starting today in Guatemala. He left Saturday morning. He, he emailed us Friday, and he said, oh, hey, I'm, I'm thinking about doing this. Will you pray for me? We're like, yeah, sure, we'll pray for you. I was like, can I share your story? Because you're, like, ruining my whole sermon. It's just, it's like, this is just how you do it. This is how you do it. And so he left. And so this is actually him. He, he sent me this yes, last night. He, he's already there. They email him on Tuesday. He packs on Wednesday and Thursday. 
He, he flies out and he's there and he's leading a team of people he's never met. And the team will be mud drilling in the community of Masakwa. And John will be training a new guy for living water to drill. And the funny thing is that this group, it just so happens that the leader is Perry Lunsford. And Perry was the guy that we met on our very first trip to El Salvador 16 wells ago. And John is helping that team that helped us get started. And that's the way faith works. If you're interruptible. But you know, I wonder how many of us here, myself in particular, if I got a call from somebody and said, hey, would you come to Guatemala on Saturday and lead a team of people you don't know? I'd be like, that is spam. <laughs> right? That's a scam. They're about to get me. No, not me. I'm smarter than that. Right? Not John. John's like, huh. I don't know what phone calls he had to make. I suppose he had to check in with his work. You know, that's not an easy thing to disappear for a week with no notice. And here's what I find in my own life. Early Chantel tells me. It's one thing to be home. It's another thing to be present. And I can be home. But man, it can be a challenge to be present. To really engage. Particularly if you're tired. Particularly if your mind's somewhere else or concerned about other things. But friends, it is going to take real discipline with our calendars and our hearts. Calendars and our hearts to become the kind of neighbors Jesus wants us to be. It just does. And I want to, I want to close with this because I think, I think the Spirit's trying to tell the world something. And I'll make sure we don't miss it. As I, was, as I was finishing up this week, I came across Karthik. Now, Karthik Namani is the 2018 Scripps National Spelling Bee Champion. When I worked for NBC, uh, it was my job to cover the whole thing and, and do the winner and you know, put out the story, that sort of thing. So I've just become obsessed with the Scripps National Spelling Bee. I love it. I just love it. His winning word, you know the, the word, the last word of this huge, huge thing was koinonia. The very last word to spell. And I thought to myself, that is easy. K-O-I-N-O-N-I-A, koinonia. Which means Christian fellowship or communion. Living with your neighbor. Getting to know your neighbor. If God has to speak through the spelling bee for the people to get it, he will speak through the spelling bee. We are supposed to get this. This is what the world needs, friends. Koinonia. 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 Amen?